Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Happy 2023. Yeah, happy new year. I know Larry David, uh, it's always, every, every new year I think of it when he says, after a few <laughs> weeks, you can't say happy new year anymore. You know, there's like a limitation on it, but this is our first episode back. So happy new year. Oh, man. Larry David, is a, he really speaks to my inner yeah. truth and my heart. <laughs> it's been a great, not great time off from the podcast because we've been working hard you know, we're always working on the There's podcast. not really any time off. But we got yeah. to catch up on some movies. Uh, now we're starting to watch some of the Oscar hopefuls. That's always my, what I do in January and the February. See, we do watch new movies, guys. Yeah, we, we, do. we do. We do. We do. Yeah. And, uh, but we are uh, celebrating Groundhog Day. Oh, you said it correctly this That's time. Right. I know. Uh, for all of you listeners out there, I've had to listen to Justin say Groundhog's Day. Like it's a, like a parade of groundhogs where we just celebrate groundhogs. Yeah, uh, on this particular. This is day. a nicer version of you telling me that I was saying it wrong. Just imagine. Uh, I I think you made a great comparison uh, when you when you said I'm you know Steve Martin uh, to your John Candy and planes, trains, automobiles, yeah. and my reaction basically I just hitting you across those knuckles until you got it right. I so, feel like I feel like this is my uh, Mandela effect. I've always <laughs> swear. I've always thought that it was Groundhog's Day, and I think uh, I'm pretty sure that I've always just said Groundhog's Day altogether. So if any other listeners out there have also said Groundhog's Day, I'm hoping I'm not the only one. I'm going to say Groundhog Day from now on, even though it seems weird for me to say it that way. One of them, Phil, Punxsutawney, Phil, one guy. Well, welcome back. Uh, This is, we're starting off uh, with a pretty big uh, movie that's well celebrated as um, an American film, there's not. It's not really a holiday that's known worldwide. Yeah. Um, but I think that this is a pretty celebrated film of universal appeal, not just um, about the holiday per se. Yeah, you know, and it's a uh, speaking of which, uh, 30th anniversary. Yeah, that's Ground, why we're doing it. 30th of anniversary. Hog Day this year, and I'm, I'm um, over here. Yeah. And I just got to get it on my system. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. This is a movie that singularly is named after this holiday um, that I don't really think is v- really celebrated. It's always just like had been a thing, almost like one of those like folk tales, like, oh, and the groundhog sees a shadow. I didn't yeah. really know until I saw this movie that there was an actual, like there's this festival and all of this stuff happens. Really? With Oh, yeah. Huh. Though I saw this movie in theaters when I was a kid, so yeah. it's that was my first real awareness of this is a celebrated holiday with like a town that does a festival and i had never heard of puxatawney phil until this movie it's probably i just pay more attention to any holiday that celebrates an animal and that's more what i'm paying attention to i get it yeah and uh you know and this was before social media so there wasn't this widespread awareness of puxatawney phil we also live in a time period where they no longer eat the hog they don't pull it out that's true that's true which is something that we do learn in Groundhog Day, which is uh, what they did do a very long yeah. time ago. What he's, what uh, Phil Connor says, back in the old day, they <laughs> brought the old hog out and they eat him. And they, that's true. They yeah. did. There's some, there's some real accuracy 
to the uh, legacy of the groundhog in this movie. Everything about Groundhog Day is factually accurate. Yeah. Everything. I'm really excited. <laughs> uh, this is a movie that I revisit once a year, but this happens every time we choose to do a movie for the podcast. I watch it with a different awareness in mind. And so I've watched this multiple times, as I usually do when we decide on a film to talk about. And there, there's a lot of depth to this movie. And I mean, I, I've always sensed some of it before, but really this is a movie that it, it, it gives you the laughs, but it also makes you think a lot about this idea, this fantasy of, you know, do-overs or like regret or like if you if you had more control in your life, something's on the loop. It's an interesting idea to use as a structure for a movie and then yeah. also add all the jokes and then have Bill Murray uh, be the lead in this because this really, the way that his character is, it like fits, it suits his style of comedy. And I, I do think this is, for me anyway, like the number one, I think of Bill Murray is like the lead actor in a movie where it is quote unquote a Bill Murray movie. Groundhog Day is the first movie that comes to mind. Out of all the collaborations between Harold Ramis, who's the director and co-writer of Groundhog Day, and Bill Murray, this is, while I get how and why this movie is celebrated and why there's such universal appeal, um, it's one of the ones I don't visit the most. Once a year, definitely. But I'll tell you why. It's not because I like it any less than Stripes or Caddyshack or Ghostbusters. Um, not that at all. It's because... Every time I do, uh, once a year, it hits me differently uh, um, each year that I watch it. And it's not always, um, you know, uh, I'm laughing. Definitely there are some like wonderful moments in this. But there have been times in my life when I really identify with Phil Connors when he is at the depths of despair. You yeah. know, when he's ashen white and like figuring out ways to kill himself. I mean, I'm not... I'm not I'm not going that far, but yeah. I'm just saying like it um it really hits on um some moments, some real life moments for people and and I do think that that is the the touchstone of why a lot of people go back and revisit it. it that each time in your life when you come back to this movie whether you are a kid or an adult, it hits you in a different way. Like this time, uh one of the most recent times that I went back and rewatched it, I got misty-eyed at parts that I didn't before yeah you know and every every time i'm like how does this movie do it to me it's not like i know what's gonna happen but yeah. every single damn time um it gets me and we'll, we'll get into it but i i think this last watch that i did what really struck me and i think i've talked about this on other episodes where you have a small town setting, mm -hmm. um, they play it straight. They don't make fun of the townspeople yeah. in a sense of like making them caricatures. I mean, there are some over the top characters like the who like, Ned Ryerson. Yeah, Ned Ryerson. The, come on, you know but, a Ned Ryerson oh, in your life, <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, but they don't they don't make it a cartoony town. Yeah, I mean, it's played straight. It's played like this is a hometown feel. They're proud of the Groundhog celebration. And so I love that that is the basis of the movie is that yeah. we're, we're going to take, we're going to use comedy, but we're also going to put him in this universe that feels very real and is played as a real place. I think that has a lot to do with, too, this being shot in Woodstock, Illinois, which is not too far from where both Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, like yeah. these guys are familiar with this um, style of town. Yeah. And I think very 
key with Harold Ramis of like the same with Ghostbusters or Stripes is like having people seem very real and situations seem there's jokes, but it feels kind of down to earth. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into Groundhog's Day very quickly here. What was that? Was it more than one Groundhog? We'll in get this? into Groundhog Day very quickly here. That's it's going to take sequel. me a while. That's it's the gonna, sequel. It's going to take me a while. I'm sorry. I apologize to our listening audience. If you'd like to, I'm not going to correct you anymore. I would just like um, our our audience to uh, just keep a tally. Yeah. Um, and just send us in how many times you think Justin says. If you just keep a, a mug over there full of rubber bands and just shoot me with a rubber band each time you hear me uh, spout off. I can't wait for that. Yeah. Yes. I so will. our picks of the week, I chose a Harold Ramis movie. I think my, maybe it's trending now because Brendan Fraser has been really talked about for like the last four months with his performance in The Whale. But I think he's fantastic in Bedazzled. So I'll talk about that movie. That's my pick of the week. And you chose a Stephen Tobolowsky film. You went kind of like out of the I realm did. of... of sort of on the nose picks here i did and it it was because um i mean there are various reasons that i i went this route but um the character of ned ryerson played by steven tobolowski um it's just i mean when i was a kid i wanted to be phil connors and punch him out like i hated ned ryerson and now i think that he's so hilarious in this movie and in a film that is writing on one person really to have a supporting character stand out and every time that he's on screen be like oh, that guy i mean you you see that guy that actor and you're like ned ryerson duh um so i thought that i would just explore what you know what other movies that i've seen him in besides single white female not that that's a hint that we'll be talking about that movie at any point <clears throat> um so I went with a movie from 1990 starring Goldie Hawn and Mel Gibson called Bird on a Wire. Bird on a Wire. You always choose these movies that I haven't seen. I've either not seen them or I haven't seen them since I was like 12. They're all the mom like solid gold hits yeah. from the 80s and 90s. I think this was one my grandma <laughs> loved and I, I watched it with her when back in the day. But Moms love me. What can I'll, I say? I'll revisit it on <laughs> just just on the, the basis that you've used it as a pick of the week. Like any 35 to 45 moms out there, yeah, you need somebody to hang out with, just, I got all the movies. Yeah. Well, uh, like we've done in the past, we won't be rounding out this episode with a Murray moment because Bill Murray is the star of the film we're talking about, and we don't like a lot of overkill on this podcast. Yeah. The entire episode is your Murray moment, yeah. really. Well, uh, this is an unusual one to, to ask for a summary on, because it kind of is is like a it's it's like the elevator pitch line of the movie of like what it's about but what's your interpretation of this movie Lindsay? can you give us your written summary of ground it's, it's never written i just come up with it off the top of my head i'm sorry i didn't mean to blow about? your cover yeah it's always off the top your of my off head. the cuff <laughs> interpretation of ground hog day groundhog's day march of the groundhogs all right, well, Groundhog Day follows Phil Connors, a cynical, narcissistic weatherman out of Channel 9 Pittsburgh, as he and his new producer and cameraman head to Punxsutawney, PA, to see what the old scamp Punxsutawney Phil will predict for winter weather this coming year. And when our weatherman is surprised by an unexpected blizzard, we're stranded in this sleepy little town along with Phil, desperately trying to get back to Pittsburgh. And when the morning breaks... 
Phil finds himself stuck in a metaphysical time loop, which has him reliving the same day, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And we're along for the journey as Phil comes to terms with his feelings about his irritation over the entire situation, eventually leading to questioning his own mortality, the people of Punxsutawney with whom he can never escape, and the greater world around him. And hopefully, after all this time, Phil learns more than a thing or two about himself and maybe becomes a little bit more of a decent person on his evolutionary path. I like that. That was very surprising, Lindsay. Oh, was it? I said said more things, and well, he just gets stuck in this time loop, and nobody really knows why. Loop. It's, it's a just, time loop movie. It's a time loop. You yep. know, you seen Back to the Future? It's bas- it's like Back to the Future. Yep. You seen like you know Peggy Sue got married? Yep. Yeah. Same same thing. Same movie. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> of course. Let's go to a clip to Groundhog Day. We'll come back. We'll talk about it. The big question on everybody's lips. Chap lips. See the groundhog? Yeah. I think it'll be an early spring. <laughs> Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. No. Ah! Don't mess with me, pork chop. <sighs> what day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. Yeah. Sorry. You know, I thought it was yesterday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Connors? Did I sleep well? Would you like some coffee? Yes, please. I think I'll have a double. I hope you enjoy the festivities. There's talk of a blizzard. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. No, that's okay. Thank you. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. 75, 80. Excuse me. Excuse me. Where's everybody going? To Gobbler's Knob. It's Groundhog Day. It's still just once a year, isn't it? So I don't want to belabor the point here, but uh, even on our notes, the very first thing you wrote, it's not Groundhog's Day, JJ. <laughs> I was just a helpful reminder. It is helping me. That's the, the first page is the informational page. Yeah, it's, it's just for you to it's revisit. It's mockingly helpful. Okay. I'd like you to cut it out and like put it mm-hmm. um, on your ceiling so you can wake up every morning yeah. and look at it and be reminded. I'm a, I'm a, I'm able to put aside my hurt feelings for the professionalism of the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's your okay. groundhog day is to wake up to that reminder every single yeah, morning. Exactly. Cool. Well, I think how a movie like Groundhog Day starts, the actual inception, the idea is a high concept idea that we saw a lot of in the 90s. 
uh, whether it be Face Off or Con Air or Speed, these type of movies that could be said in one sentence. You know, there's a bomb on the bus and it can't go for 55 miles per hour, or you know, this uh, undercover agent's going to switch faces, surgically switch faces with this criminal and infiltrate the underworld, oh, or even Face Off, oh, yeah, Face Off, or or uh, <laughs> yeah. even like uh, 2000s Memento, yeah, where yeah. the movie, the whole thing plays backwards and he can't remember anything. He has a tattoo clues to remember things these movies a lot of times uh the concept is better than the actual movie itself and i think groundhog day is one that i can consistently go back to and enjoy even though i know how the ending goes i know that he's going to get out of this time loop but the concept in and of itself was a great high concept idea of like this guy's stuck in a time loop there's no explanation as to why but he just has the same day repeating over and over again. And it's great because it's immediately one of those ideas where the first thing you, you, you do is like, well, what would I do? You know, there's the fantasy idea of like, okay, would I do all the things he does? Would I use this loop as for good, for evil? Very much in the way of like uh, an Invisible Man type movie, you know, where it's mm-hmm. just like this thing kind of sucks and I'm lonely, but yet you have the ability to change people's lives for good or bad. And I think that a lot of those concepts are are wildly explored in this film. And it all started with this one, one liner idea of like guy stuck in a time loop. Yeah. And I love that the main writer, like the, the brain that this came from Danny Rubin, he had this idea kind of brewing for a while. And it was simply just that a guy stuck in a time warp committed to reliving the same day over and over again. But why? What would we uh, learn from that? How would you react in this situation? And he was a pretty fresh writer to L.A. Um, he had come up with this idea kind of around the mid-80s, but hadn't really fleshed it out too much and had some minor success um, in the late 80s, early 90s, but had committed to coming up with a few story concepts in hopes of selling it to the Illinois Film Commission um, and or the founder of Second City. So more of this Illinois vein is where he was heading and hopefully trying to keep it a little local. So he had this idea, time machine, not exactly the newest idea, but the concept of it not being a time travel thing, but yet a time warp is is more um, Twilight Zone territory. So this concept would continue to morph and evolve. And it wasn't until he actually was influenced, and I was blown away to learn this, by Anne Rice, um, by the vampire Lestat. And I read that book in high school, and it wasn't, I would never think that someone, um, but I'm not also not a novelist or, you know, a screenwriter, would think about evolving a story that's about a guy stuck in a time warp and likening that to the idea of vampires. But in a way, I mean, I get it when you say this, that there's this sense of timelessness and being immortal and thinking about that vampires, before they became vampires, were once normal people. And now they don't have to follow any rules. They can pretty much do whatever they want. And there's a sense of being doomed. I mean, you're there are plenty of vampire stories out there about some vampires love life or love being undead some are doomed and hate life and wish that they could end it all but don't really want to end it all so in the story evolving about how a person can change over time is immortality boring how long does it last do you remain in this childlike id sense you know for for the whole story Um, how long can that last where do you evolve from beyond that 
So Ruben uh, glommed onto this idea of using a holiday, that being the day, something that would ground it in a day to relive. And the way that he says it is that he chose the nearest holiday to where he was at that point in life, and that was Groundhog Day. We, we've talked about this with slashers and things like that, that when you pick a, a holiday, something like that automatically has a fan base built in. It's always going to be celebrated every year. Someone's going to be talking about it now. There's going to be a hashtag for it, you know. But there wasn't a movie about Groundhog Day. And I couldn't think of a better holiday about something that has to do with time because Groundhog Day is about time. Is is winter going to come uh, is, is it going to stay around longer? Is, is spring going to come sooner? It deals with time. So it was kind of just a, a wonderful mix that had just happened for Danny Rubin that this idea began to evolve. And when you have Groundhog Day, the, the festival, the celebration happening in one town, one small town, um, that creates a feeling of of, of being limited. You're, yeah. you're You're stuck in one spot. So you can imagine Danny Rubin's wheels are spinning and are like, I've got a guy that's stuck in a time warp. He's waking up to the same day in the same town. Okay, okay. So this idea begins to evolve. Um, in total, it takes him eight weeks to to come up with the whole idea. But seven of those weeks are to come up with the idea, the rules of what can happen and what can't happen in this world of not time travel, but time warp. And it only takes him about, I think, like seven days to bang out the first version of this script. And one thing from minute one was that Danny Rubin didn't want there to be a reason for the time warp. He never wrote a reason in. There wasn't something that was a curse, magical, you know, anything like that. And he really wanted to hang on to that idea of not explaining and not defining the reason why this time loop was happening. Um, because he thought that it made it more universal and relatable to a mainstream audience. I think it's a great idea that there's no explanation. I, I disagreed when I was a kid. When this movie came out, I remember oh, yeah? seeing it in the theater and being annoyed that there wasn't an explanation and thinking, like, did I miss it? Did I miss <laughs> them explaining why the day keeps happening over and over again? And it is because you could get caught up in that, like the the why and how if it wasn't a good reason or hung up on the logistics of like why he's stuck in the time loop i like that they just scratched that and they're like you know what he he every day it's just like he wakes up there's no explanation nothing and you just and it, i think it's it's a way that you really accept it and you're eased into the town and the, mm -hmm. how everybody is is who reacted to him on the first day and how they're doing the same thing on the second day it makes it a little bit more fun without him sort of like going on and on about why this happened to him. Instead, they just have the character deal with the situation. And I love that he's an outsider, not someone who lives in the town, who he doesn't know anybody there other than his coworkers and that he's visiting. And so it, it also works in that sort of fish out of water story, foreign, you know, person stuck in a foreign land idea and makes the movie even more interesting. I don't think I'd ever questioned why there wasn't a reason because the main character never questions it. And by setting it up in that way, I mean, I guess, unlike you, I bought it. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I wasn't questioning it, and I wasn't thinking about it. And um, 
I think if there had been a reason, if we were given something to question, it would have taken away from the magic of caring about the people of Punxsutawney and and caring about Phil's interaction with him. It would have been more about, how do I get out of this time warp? He has yeah. no idea why the hell it's even happening, and he's not even caring. It's more he's caring about the reactions to yeah. it to it happening. And uh, they did have some ideas. I think one of them was that like he was cursed by a coworker or like a scorned coworker or yeah. scorned lover or something like that. Yeah. And it's better without all that. I, I think of all the body swap movies, how they always said to put in some kind of like goofy reasoning why uh, the bodies would swap. Oh, why they body would... swap. And yeah. do you really remember what those reasons? I don't know. You it, just remember yeah. that they swap bodies. Yeah. That's really it. And I, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't uh, make like a dozen of these like time loop movies in the 90s like after the success of Groundhog Day but you know because there was what a dozen body swap movies they're still making body swap movies they still are that's yeah. right and we could talk about body swap movies till the cows come home maybe that's a special we can do in the future but right now we'll get back to Danny Rubin uh, with this script so he wanted to sell this and he passed this off to his agent at CAA Creative Artists Agency and his agent Richard Lovett also represented Harold Ramis at the time and passed along the Groundhog Day script to him. Now at this point in Ramis's career I mean he'd done Caddyshack, uh, Vacation, Club Paradise and that was maybe not one of his more successful films but he was still Harold Ramis and he was also looking to expand beyond the anti-establishment kind of more not slapstick but more uh more focused type of humor and and a less chevy chase type of humor nothing no shade on chevy chase i love i love his movies come on now but harold ramus was looking for a different type of comedy to do and the idea of spirituality and redemption was always something that had appealed to to harold and to have this script come across his desk, he was kind of really jumping at it and was excited at the idea that there was a comedy out there that dealt with spirituality, had romantic aspects. But the thing about this one is he thought the humor needed to be amped up a little bit. Not that it was um, completely dark and was humorless. There was certainly dark humor in there, but it needed to be, the levity needed to be brought up a little bit. So Ruben had two deals, two offers out there, one with Harold Ramis through Columbia Pictures. He'd get a larger budget, but he would lose creative control over the script. IRS Pictures was a smaller independent studio. He would have a $3 million budget, and he would retain all of his original ideas. There are pros and cons to both of these things, but I could see why he went with Harold Ramis directing this project. It's kind of a no-brainer to go with that. So that's what he went with. And Columbia Pictures immediately wants changes. That's pretty expected. Yeah, and I'm glad that it didn't go in that direction because it is a, um, I think he, in one of the interviews, uh, Danny Rubin said it started out more of like an independent film idea where the actual story starts in the middle of the movie, like a Pulp Fiction type where he punches Ned Ryerson's character in the face and like there's a voiceover narration like, here's why I got here. And I could see that being shot on the low budget with that, no one really like massaging out the script like Harold Ramis did. Like it pauses right as he hits yeah, Ned yeah, Ryerson in just, the face. I could see it like <laughs> yeah. being just kind of like a forgettable early 90s independent film. Yeah. And it was something that initially 
Harold Ramis wasn't, he wasn't balking at the idea of it starting in the middle. He thought that that was kind of a cool idea at the time, but it wasn't the main focus of what they were trying to flesh out at this point. He wanted to bring up the ideas of reincarnation and Buddhism and really play up that aspect. And this time loop idea was not clean. And that was fine with with Harold Ramis. He was okay with not having a defined idea. Columbia Pictures, on the other hand, felt like there needed to be a tangible reason. Like, is this some type of chemical reaction? Did, you know, like you said earlier, was this a hex that someone put on and we need a reason for it? But Ruben was really trying to hold on to the idea that the reason is arbitrary. We don't we don't need it. But he and Ramus would write ideas that they would plan to shoot later in the schedule, in the shooting schedule, with the hopes of just never actually getting the time to shoot those scenes. So basically never really planning on having any of that um, that Columbia wanted in there. Another aspect that Harold keeps bringing up in every interview that I've seen with him is the idea that um, he never got how Superman was always uh, had time for Lois Lane to have this love interest with Lois Lane when he, he, he could have been busy for 24-7 saving lives. There's always somebody dying. There's always a car crashing. Like, what's this guy doing messing around with Lois Lane? But that's part of one of the reasons that Groundhog Day um, is such an unexpected romance story. And I don't think that it's a concept that you expect to come out of a movie that is happening in a time warp where it's just taking place in one day. Like, how can a romance happen within one day, especially with a character who's pretty unsavory like he's a jerk what can happen Lindsay? it just takes a lot of work and planning man you say that in such a deadpan way that um forget that it's a totally a line from the movie that bill murray says so along with some other script changes another thing is that the movie was front-loaded with a lot of darkness you know we see where punxsutawney phil gets kidnapped and phil's uh, repeated suicides crashing a car like we see these later in the movie but this was something that the movie was front-loaded with and that would be one thing that with Ramus's rewrites something that he would work towards massaging and uh, working into the story to where it was less aggressive in the beginning and making you um, care about Phil Connors establishing Phil as pretty despicable character and we don't really like him we kind of don't care what happens to him if anything we're kind of happy that he's being punished a little bit but somewhere along the lines we start to care about him and this story structure that Ruben and Ramus would build Groundhog Day into would be basically the five stages of grief of dealing with death and dying. And those are denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. And when you watch the movie, that is exactly what happens. And all of these, it doesn't feel that it's something that you're, you know, reading out of out of a manual, this is what you're going to go through. It feels incredibly natural. And again, that is what eases us into caring about Phil Connors. He's a terrible guy. We don't want him to, you know, get Rita, get the Andy McDowell character. But by the end of the movie, we do. You know, we we care what happens to him and we see his actual evolution. I think it's here, too, that they add the premise that, that we've seen in a lot of movies where a character that is despicable or someone who we don't like is set with a tremendous amount of challenges and through these challenges and hardships they become a better person on the other side that's been done to death but in this movie i feel like there's so much going on and because of the the time loop situation and there's so much fun happening that you know that kind of creeps in through the movie 
and it is very satisfying, you know, to see this character um, become someone who actually cares about uh, people other than himself. But to set it up with a guy who is first annoyed that it's happening and then thinks, oh, man, I can control this entire town. I am basically the god of this town. Like, whatever, I can I can crash cars, I can rob a bank, I can do whatever I want. And then that coming to the idea of, but wait, this is kind of a curse that I can't ever escape this loop. And when Phil settles in that depression state where he feels that his emotions are frozen, where he's gone through his manipulative phase where he's tried to bag every girl in town and, you know, tried these multiple setups and we see it as vignettes, but this isn't over a few days. I mean, even though the, the idea of time isn't, we, we keep saying that this is a time warp and we don't know the exact time. And there've been plenty of articles out there and theorizing how long. And originally in Danny Rubin's original script, he had it in there that Phil, uh, how he kept track of time was to read one page of a book that was in the bed and breakfast where he was staying. So that's how he kept track of how many days. And we don't have anything like that. I'm kind of glad that we don't. But it, it does make you kind of question, like, how long are we here? Well, there's there's one scene in particular where I would have liked him to just drop a hint to the audience or, or like a clue as to how long it had been. And that's when he's eating all the food mm-hmm. and, you know, he's just like, I don't care about anything anymore. Or the scene where he's talking to her and saying, you know, he is a god. He's not the god, but he is a god. Yeah. When Or when he's actually confiding into Rita the truth of his life as he's been living it. That would have been a perfect opportunity to say it's been 1,000 years or like it's been 400,000 days that I, I've walked through this town. And that's why just to, just to give us some sort of inclination, because I do... I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me that it's not mentioned, but I do feel like it just would get, it would give more weight, in my opinion, to some of the later scenes. You're right. It would give more weight to it. And I think that they, they try to communicate that, like you said, through showing us that Phil can't play piano. And then, you know, by, by the time that he's playing for the whole town, he's incredible, you know, but yeah, think about how long that would take day after day. Um, I think Danny Rubin originally had this kind of Buddhist idea that it was 10,000 years. And Ramus just thought, dude, this is, I get it. I get what you're going for. And I like the yeah. idea, but it's just not a concept that people are going to be like, believe. 10,000 years, it's not It's not yeah. something that you can like hold on to. I think the only time Phil actually references an amount of time is mm-hmm. when they're doing the card trick into the hat. And she was like, you know, he's like, how long? He's like, oh, you, you can get really good. It only takes like four or five months, four or five hours a yeah. day. You know, and she's like, is this what you do with your eternity? You know, and but it would have been nice to I would have loved yeah. to have a couple more. I wouldn't mind a few more like that, yeah. though, where he just says offhandedly, because during all of these instances in the movie, it's so time doesn't even matter to him anymore. He's given up. Yeah. But that's part of breaking down the Phil Connors character. We need him to give up and we need him to become a selfless person. He has to go through that depressed state um, until he wakes up basically a new man and is more honest with himself, stops being manipulative, learns to care about himself, in turn 
uh, being able to let people in, yeah. you know, and confronting reality that he's not a god. One of the biggest um, parts before we get to the acceptance to look beyond himself, one part that hits me really hard, and it's intended, and the studio thought it was a little too dark, was um, the homeless man that Phil keeps running into, and you see it every morning before, right before he meets Ned Ryerson, and he goes through various you know, things of ignoring him to however he deals with this homeless guy. And then when he gets to the state where he cares beyond himself, he you know, takes the homeless guy to, to get something to eat and then finds out that he later dies and like has trouble reconciling. Oh shit. This is like real. Like the, I have to look beyond myself. This is other people's lives. And he starts, he starts to care. Yeah. And they take their time with that scene too. Mm-hmm. It's not, it is, it is a, I agree with the studio for a, for a somewhat of a straight comedy, but it does allow a change in his character like it, it they let that breathe a bit and mm-hmm. even when he's talking to him and he like slides the other bowl of soup you know it's just it, it it's a it's a it's not a cheap trick either it's not yeah yeah it's yeah. it's it's it feels it feels more real than yeah just like a a saccharine way to yeah. to to manipulate an audience it reminds me of a similar situation in Scrooge where his character is kind of going through a different kind of time warp um, where he is encountering another homeless man whom he's been a dick to, and he also dies and also can't reconcile the fact that this guy's dead. And, you know, just this, yeah. um, it's how his character becomes a better person is to start to care beyond himself. So with Ruben and Ramus making changes to the script, Ramus is starting to add in a lot more. Um, one big change is the original ending was uh, Rita, actually. The, the, the time loop is passed off to Rita from Phil, and then she gets stuck in this same loop. Ramus wants this taken out. This isn't the way that the story should go, and it uh, just kind of prolongs this this feeling of, of, of never ending when we have already come to a resolution with this character. We need to feel that Phil is purified and that he is redeemed is the idea that Ramus is going for. He does want to keep the darker elements, the suicide attempts, and feels that this is a good counterbalance to the sentimentality and romantic moments in the movie. So they turned in the script to Columbia, and Columbia is pretty happy with where the script is heading with Ramus's edition. So Ruben is actually removed as the primary writer to the script, and Ruben is a little salty about this. But Ramus and producer Trevor Albert would take the script, make it into a standard three-act story, and knew that in order to make this work, it needed to be studio-friendly, to make it a palatable story with taking these darker thematic elements and kind of, you know, like you were saying, high-concept idea and making it work for a studio. So they turned in the script, and of course, they're thinking about cast the entire time. And it might be hard for some people to believe because Harold Ramis and Bill Murray were, you know, besties for years and years. But Bill Murray wasn't the first original choice to star in this film. So Columbia likes the changes to the script and they temporarily rehire Ruben to just kind of supervise and give notes since this was his original idea. With Ruben being reintroduced, he gets wind of, and we'll go into talking more about cast in the second discussion, um... Ruben doesn't really want Bill Murray to be involved. He doesn't think that he, he said he's not a good enough actor. He can't really do this role or what he at least thinks that he can. I think at this point, 
Andy McDowell had already signed on, and it was Harold Ramis and McDowell who were both going to bat for Bill Murray being like, the one thing that he has got going for him, I mean, aside from the fact that he is a really good actor, is that as Bill Murray, the man, um, he can be a jerk a lot of times, but he's always going to win you over in the end. Somehow, he redeems himself to you, and that is what we need in Phil Connors. So Bill Murray is now thrown into the mix with this, and when you've got Harold Ramis and Bill Murray working on um, a piece, Bill's going to throw in his own ideas as to where he thinks uh, the story works and where maybe some tonality changes need to happen. So the disagreements over um, the overall tone of the film and thematic elements would kind of rage on through the production. It seems like in this section of the writing process of Groundhog Day, we had two teams. We had Harold Ramis and producer Trevor Albert, and then Danny Rubin and Bill Murray. Both teams kind of went different directions. Rubin was a little frustrated with Bill Murray's kind of lax approach, but overall, their darker, more philosophical aspects gelled with each other more so than Albert and Ramis. So when the two teams got back together, Ramis was pretty frustrated and just thought, okay, these these ideas aren't working together. So he did the best thing that he can do. And I think reading everything that I ever have about Harold Ramis, he seems like a really good diplomat of just making it work. So he did the best that he could, and that was integrating elements from Reuben and Murray's rewrite, as well as his and Trevor Albert's rewrite. So at the end of the day, it really came down to Ramis putting all of this into screenplay form and putting it together in a cohesive manner. One thing that was super smart, I think, to do with this script, no matter what your uh, conflicts or tonal changes, was making this movie look timeless. That is one aspect and one reason why this movie will be kind of forever and ongoing. And the tonality challenge that they had throughout the movie um, did hit at times a breaking point, but they eventually had somewhat of an agreement. I mean, Bill Murray and Danny Rubin wanted to maintain the spirituality aspect of the movie and the existential dread. They loved that dark stuff. And there was a scene that was written that I think they took like three days to shoot where it was Bill Murray like destroying his entire hotel room and like using a chainsaw and like just massacring the whole room. And then when he wakes up in the morning, everything is all back together again. They started realizing that these are too big of gestures. You know, it's like too big of a scene to explain something simple. And so they went with the whole him breaking the pencil and like setting it on the nightstand and then waking up and the pencils back together. And that's something that registered more with audiences, according to Harold Ramis and some other actors and saying it was at that moment, that decision where they were leaning the story more toward let's focus on the, the realities of how this situation is affecting the character and how he wants to better himself. And then they started doing more rewrites and leaning more in toward that direction where he starts focusing on helping people in the town, bettering their lives and like less focus on how he can score with women or with Andy <laughs> McDowell in general. You know, on a very fundamental like production level, another thing with that scene is that when Phil massacres his room, when they went to reset the scene, it wasn't exact. And everything about this movie, it's reshooting and reshooting and reshooting the same scene. And when it doesn't look the same, 
when I mean, it could be like a tiny little thing is yeah. off, and maybe an audience isn't going to notice. But this was like the entire set was destroyed. You lose the illusion. That yeah, exactly. That it's the same day. To sidestep a little bit in talking about the actual town that they shot in, because they it like you had mentioned a moment ago about this movie looking timeless, and it does have this very classic sort of like quaint small town feel that. When you watch it, it still feels pretty fresh. I feel like you could drive to a town like this and still see a festival like this. You know, I mean, that there's festival. We live in the Midwest. There's fest, like Apple festivals and all kinds of stuff where you can you, drive you to Woodstock, see, Illinois. You would see people this. getting hyped <laughs> over something like a Groundhog Day festival. And uh, they shot this. It's supposed to take place in Pennsylvania, but this was shot in. Uh, Woodstock, Illinois, which is very close to the Wisconsin border, so very north Illinois. According to Harold Ramis, the town was like absolutely ecstatic to have them shoot the movie here, and he said that they actually picked the town because they had it had that big town square where they could constantly shoot. And he said, you know, so many townspeople, like 500 people or so, would come out, and they were acting as the extras and having to do the you know do everything over and over again. Um, so that they could shoot the multiple days that Bill Murray was uh, stuck in the town. And the town itself really becomes a character in the film, so much so that in the end where Bill Murray says, let's live here, you know, he falls in love with the town. And I think that that's really, um, as much as he gets the, the woman at the end, the woman of his dreams at the end, the fact that he has grown to love this town that he first despised, you stay somewhere long enough, you start seeing the things that, not everybody sees, you know, you do see the eccentricities and the unique things that, that can be found in any town if you look hard enough, you know, and you, you stay there long enough, you can come to appreciate certain things. And even though they settled on Woodstock, Illinois, this was after many, like many, many, many scouted locations that weren't going to work, including Punxsutawney. And the town of Punxsutawney was a little, they were a little, uh, PO'd about not actually being used for this, but the town as it was wasn't set up to I mean, to look good in a movie the way that Woodstock was able to. Woodstock still has, and probably even better since Groundhog Day was filmed there, had a, a perfect town square for this to be filmed in. And when they started, um, it was almost considered to be too cold at the time um, to start filming in this town. And and with everything having to look the same, it had to look like the same day. And I think they started in uh, March in shooting. They had to shoot all of their exteriors in the very beginning during the coldest times of the year. And sometimes, I mean, it was always under freezing, but around, you know, 20 degrees filming outside for 12 hours a day. There were times that Andy McDowell said, you know, my face was frozen. And there are plenty, like way too many painful outtakes of Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, they're trying to say their lines and like you can see that they're they're tongue tied because they can't actually form the words because they're that cold. I think it was like was harrowing to say like it was the first day of shooting and they noticed on the monitor that Andy McDowell's face started to look really weird. Yeah. And they realized it's like, oh, it's cause her face is like getting numb from the from the cold and they were, they were thinking like are we going to be able to shoot this here? Yeah. And then uh, they did say that the uh, once they let the town know, like everybody brought in all these heaters and all these ways to kind of try to do their best to um, keep warm. So it was another thing where the town was like a really good sport about, you know, what can we do to help? You know, mm -hmm. we, we want to make this this a successful shoot. Make this work. Yeah. Uh, 
every time Harold Ramis like talks about uh, like in the commentary, he's like, if it looks cold here, it's because it is. It was extremely cold. And also, and this is something, you know, a repetitive scene that we see all throughout the movie is when Phil steps in the giant pothole of water over and over again. You know, in the movie, it's funny, but you don't think about it from an actor's point of view that he's stepping in that ice cold water, 20 degree weather over and over and over again, um, that Bill's leg had to be wrapped in like cellophane and rubber to keep from getting frostbite. Like there's just nuts to, you know, you're not thinking that when you're watching the movie, you might not even realize that it's uh, that really that cold. In watching the movie uh, this last few times, I really noticed how gray the actual film looks like because they said that it was pretty much the sun didn't shine through most of the shoot other than I think it was like one scene. And there's actually a moment where it goes so gray in the movie, like it almost looked like my my TV went dim Mm -hmm. for a second because there's some scenes that are just downright. I mean, it almost looks like they put like a filter on. It just has like a gray tone to the whole like image. It adds to the whole feel. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Especially, too, once it gets into the darker elements of his uh, despair. Yeah. And Phil really looks ashen white more than a few times. So, you know, we were talking about how, like, there there was this very big disagreement on the tone and things got a little bit better. There were still a lot of disagreements right up to the end, Um, even all the way to the almost the end of shooting. There's a scene where Annie McDowell stays the night with Bill Murray and they're about to shoot the scene where it's the next day and it becomes a new day and they couldn't get Bill Murray to shoot the scene. He wouldn't do it. And everybody was kind of waiting on set and he was just like, what do I have a robe on? Like, what am I wearing? Did we, did we have sex? Like that's yeah. what, what is happening? And he, he's questioning Harold Ramis and Harold Ramis is like, why, what do you think? And, Bill Murray's like you're you're the creator here like what do you so they're having a disagreement and they actually uh Harold Ramis said they they everybody the crew that was in the room they took a vote on whether or not him and Andy McDowell had sex that night and what Bill Murray should be wearing in the scene that they're about to shoot and like, Andy McDowell like do they have clothes on yeah are they the same clothes from the night before are they pajamas that sort of thing and it came down to one female crew member who said if we show them without clothes on or, you know, suggesting that they had sex, it takes away the purity that needs to happen for Phil to get to this point. It isn't about whether Rita and Phil have sex. It's not about, we're not leading up to that. It's not about Phil getting the girl. It's about getting to the next point. And she said, uh, if you if you shoot him any other way, you're going to ruin the whole movie. And so it was like Harold Ramis looked at Bill Murray and he said, so... Uh, we need to do it with you wearing your robe and you guys didn't uh, have sex because otherwise we're going to ruin the whole movie. And Bill Murray just said, okay. And then they <laughs> shot the scene and it's like, whoa, that's just kind of a crazy that's how that happened. concept of like how that came together, especially because the scene is so good when they wake up in the morning. Bill Murray's just like total confusion of like, wait, why are you here? And then her, we get the joke of like, you know, I bought you, you know, yeah. and then it's like, we're like, oh yeah. He, his his mind's kind of blown because he's like forgotten everything that's happened because it's just a shock of like a new day. And I love too that her arm reaches over. We're used to hearing the Sonny and Cher song and you see her arm come in the frame past Bill Murray and like turn it off. And because it's, it's only the uh, second time I think that we, 
see that happen. We see it one time before and we think maybe this is the instance where, you know, it's going to happen and Phil wakes up and it's still sunny and share. And so the next time that this happens, you're kind of like, well, obviously it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I, and I really love too that it wraps up so quickly you know, we mm-hmm. don't have this like 15 minutes. I mean, it's the next day. Bill Murray's extremely happy and they go downstairs and then they have the, you know, he, when he says, let's move here and then they wrap it up. They He carries her over the the fence, you know, or the gate, uh, which I guess Harold Ramis said it was so, it was frozen shut. So yeah. they couldn't actually <laughs> open it. That's why he does that. But I love that ending. You know, we don't, we don't need anything else. You know, we've sat through this experience with Phil Connors this whole time. So we're relieved for him. We don't need like 20 minutes of him talking about how happy he is. It's like just this idea that he wakes up on a different day is like, all we need this, this one moment. And the end of this movie has such a romantic feel to it. It does end very much like a romantic comedy and watching the movie over and over again. I do feel like this movie is like in somewhat disguised as a romantic comedy because there is all of this like we've talked about existential dread and him trying to figure out how to live in this world but ultimately it's him learning that he loves Andy McDowell's character and I think the reason why it functions also as a romantic comedy is because the chemistry between Bill Murray and Andy McDowell is incredible her curiosity with Phil's character even when he's being an a-hole in the beginning. So let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, their chemistry. We'll talk about this cast. And we'll uh, continue to talk about some of the on-set disputes that happened between Ramis and Murray. All right. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. Special today is blueberry waffles. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to believe in me. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. I could come back if you're not ready. How do you know I'm not a god? Oh, please. How do you know? Because it's not possible. Doris. This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. This is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am. (laughs) This is Gus. He hates his life here. He wishes he stayed in the Navy. Well, I could have retired on half pay after 20 years. Excuse me, is this some kind of trick? Well, maybe the real God uses tricks. You know, maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long, he knows everything. Oh, okay. Well, who's that? This is Tom. He worked in the coal mine until they closed it down. And her? It's Alice. Came over here from Ireland when she was a baby. She lived in Erie most of her life. He's right. And her? Nancy. She works in the dress shop and makes noises like a chipmunk when she gets real excited. Hey! It's true. How do you know these people? I told you. I know everything. In about five seconds, a waiter's going to drop a tray of dishes. Five, four, three, two, one. 
okay? Okay, that's enough. What about me, Phil? Do you know me, too? I know all about you. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. Well, everyone knows that. You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to a lake in the summer with your family up in the mountains. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof. And a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. How are you doing this? I told you, I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. And there's nothing I can do about it. If you still can't believe me, listen. In, in 10 seconds, Larry is going to come through that door and take you away from me. But you can't let him. Please believe me. You've got to believe me. You guys ready? We better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. What's that? If we're going to stay ahead of the weather. Like we said at the top of the episode, we're not going to do a Murray moment this time, but we did want to talk about Bill Murray a little bit, especially being the star of this film. There's no denying that Bill Murray has been notoriously difficult to work with, and uh, that was definitely the case with Groundhog's Day. This was the movie that ended his over 20-year working relationship with his good buddy Harold Ramis. From what we can gather, it sounds like they fought continuously throughout the making of the film. There's several actors who were considered for the role of Phil Connors, who I could easily see doing a decent job. You know, This is definitely a movie I could see, see Steve Martin doing the role very well, but it is a movie that uh, fits with Bill Murray's sensibilities. And it's also, I think, an early sign, especially the latter part of Groundhog's Day, where you start to see that dramatic turn in Bill Murray that he would go on to perfect in Wes Anderson movies and be known more for a dramatic actor than a comedic actor. It's funny how that happens yeah. in someone's career. But yeah, it's not something that we can really skirt by, nor would we really want to, but it is kind of important to take note of where he was coming from at this point in his personal life. So when he entered into this movie, um, he was having marriage problems with his first wife, Mickey Kelly. And that would um, ultimately culminate in their divorce that would come through in 1996. From what I've gathered, because Bill has never really spoken on this. He's never really talked about it. Um, Harold Ramis was not quiet about talking about it. I think he kind of dampened it, um, you know, as, as the years went on, but he was pretty hurt, um, in the aftermath of, of kind of losing their friendship after this movie. Bill was noticeably in a bad mood more often than not. And it seemed to a lot of people that he couldn't separate his real life troubles from life on the set. And I can imagine how that would be pretty difficult. And then when you are someone who is a perfectionist, he was, Harold Ramis knew, you know, and working with him for so long that he is a perfectionist. And I can see how if you're working with someone who you are very close with and friends with and who is not afraid to stand up to you, that creative differences compounded on top of personal problems can make you a bear to deal with. And he was. They disagreed over the script, as we already said, other actors' performances. Bill was known to be irrational, mean at times, not to everybody, but it was 
really targeted towards uh, Harold Ramis. Um, unkind and frequently unavailable, so much so that Ramis said, look, dude, if you're going to be like this, you're going to have to get a personal assistant. And he did. Bill got a deaf personal assistant. That was his answer to that, which didn't really shock Harold Ramis, and obviously that personal assistant didn't last very long. And from what I understand, the final straw was um, tensions really blew up when Harold Ramis grabbed Bill by the shirt and threw him up against a wall and just had had enough. And from everyone who's talked about Ramis, this was very uncharacteristic of him. Um, So he had really been kind of pushed to the brink. I think that Bill's performance in this movie did come out um, in an incredible way. I think, yes, like you said, it could be played by a couple other people could do this role, but I think Bill was the right choice for this. And we should get into talking more about Bill's performance and the rest of the cast, but I do want to kind of end this section because, um, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I, I have a soft spot for Bill Murray and his relationship with Harold Ramis. I mean, when Harold Ramis died in 2014, I was heartbroken. Like, it it it, it affected me for, for, I mean, even now thinking about it, it like breaks my heart. And even though the men would not speak for years to come, like I said, Harold did talk about it. And in many interviews would say things like, you know, I've had dreams about him that we're friends again. And remembers the, the feeling in those dreams was just something that, um, you know, he wanted that friendship back and it really did hurt him. Other people like Violet Ramis, Harold Ramis's daughter, said that her dad tried to reach out multiple times and Bill just didn't respond. But he felt crazy keeping on trying to do this. It wasn't, he, he'd done everything that he could. So for those of you who don't know, in 2010, Harold Ramis was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and in classic kind of unpredictable Bill Murray fashion. In 2014, Bill showed up um, one morning, I think it was 7 a.m., with a police escort and a dozen donuts to Harold Ramis's house. At this point, four years into Ramis's illness, he really wasn't able to get around too well. He wasn't able to speak all too well either. But for anyone who uh, knew about this encounter and his visit to seeing Harold, they spent quite a few hours together and they talked and shared laughs what they could and I don't think there was much reconciling but this was like the first time that they had been together since the end of Groundhog Day and it I don't want to say like you know everything was peachy keen and fine and everything but I I don't know I would like to think that Bill probably knew that you know I need to give it up after this amount of time and for me this was solidified at the 2014 Oscars when um, Bill was presenting with Amy Adams for Best Cinematography, and this is after Harold has passed away, um, they name off the nominees, and Bill, I mean, it was totally an ad lib. This was not scripted. Like, the camera wasn't set up for it. Bill said, oh, yeah, we forgot one nominee, and that's Harold Ramis for Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. I don't know. To me, that says the guy's trying to... um, make amends in some way. Maybe not in a Phil Connors sort of way, but in a Bill Murray sort of way. So I think that there's, I bet, a lot of baggage that he was carrying around at that time, obviously personally, but he carried that with him for a long time. And, um, you know, I don't know the guy, but I think when you don't speak about something that affected you so deeply, you know, there's some emotions there. Yeah. So I'm not trying to um, also explain away his 
crappy behavior, extremely crappy behavior on set. But, um, you know, it's not like the guy didn't have feelings. And I think he probably ultimately felt bad. Well, even though that their friendship was uh, sacrificed for the movie, at least the film itself didn't suffer. Didn't suffer. It became a classic. And Bill Murray's performance in this movie, I think, is one of his best. Yeah. And I do believe that if you're someone who dislikes Bill Murray, because there's a lot of Bill Murray haters out there, not not specifically for his behavior, but just in terms of they don't like his style of comedy and Mm -hmm. the smart aleckiness. I think this is a more toned down version of Bill Murray being a smart aleck. And he does take a few pot shots in the beginning of the movie. But for the most part, I think he's pretty tolerable as far as like someone who's brash and like bullying, you know, in the beginning of the film, especially compared to some of his other characters that that he's played in movies. I do really feel like by the end of the movie, we see a character who's gone through many, many different phases of psychological transformation. I mean, we see someone who was like super confident and self-assured to like hitting the lowest of lows, completely being broken apart, and then trying to realize how to rebuild and then restructuring their life. And then at the end, becoming a completely different person in which they started the film. Yeah. You know, and and also to like the ability of having to, as an actor, replay these same scenes, but with like different personalities you know, where it's like, he's me in the beginning, but now we're going to do this scene. And he's like confused. And he's, we're, they're doing it next day. And he's like a little bit fearful, you know, Bill Murray did a really good job. I think of like transitioning those different beats for different days so that it reads for the audience that like, Oh, this is a different day. And Oh, he's half joking, but kind of scared, you know, and the him adding his little jokes because that's the kind of person that he was. But, um, we see a gradual change with this character throughout the movie And I really love his performance in this. I think this is my favorite Bill Murray performance. I appreciate a lot of the dramatic work he does. This movie, we get that dramatic work, but we also get the Murray that people grew up on that we love, the wisecracking jokester. This role was tailor-made for someone who could ad-lib. When you have to do scenes that are the same scene over and over and over again in order to keep it fresh and interesting, people like Andy McDowell were always ready for something that Bill was going to come off with because she knew that it wasn't going to be the same take as it was before. You know, we said there's a handful of actors that, you know, you could imagine playing this, but I would amend that statement to be like, it's a handful of actors. I think Steve Martin was a good choice there because Steve Martin could ad lib and throw out new ideas and keep it fresh. Yeah. You know, I know Bill Murray is not the most like handsome man in Hollywood, but I do buy him and, Andy McDowell, and I do buy for her to start having feelings for him. Um, Also noting that Bill Murray is an actor that goes for it. Like there's that montage where she slaps him on all these different occasions. And she's really slapping him. Yeah, she's really slapping him. Bill Murray just said, go for it. Just like hit me as hard as you can if you want to. Um, That wasn't the only abuse. He also got bit by the groundhog at least three times. Yeah, they said (laughs) that the uh, groundhog... uh, would get honorary toward the, you know, they, you can only film with them so long cause they start getting like super pissed off and it eventually started biting through his glove into his hand. Yeah. So getting slapped and getting bit by groundhogs and pelted by snowballs when the director says, no, throw it as hard as you can. Yeah. Bill took a little bit of abuse in this movie, but I think the character of Phil Connors needs to be abused yeah. a little bit. It yeah. probably helped his performance even more. Yeah. I can't really say enough about 
the chemistry between him and Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell is one of those actors that I I don't always think about, and then when I see her in a movie, take a moment to like, wow, Andy McDowell just has this really natural sensibility in every role that she carries, and it a lot of times it's sort of the same character. But it's always just like really, for the most part, at least, and I'm not as familiar with her work as other actors, but I've seen a lot of her movies and she does have that way that like puts you at ease. And her character here is so um, warm and you really, really want Phil to like try to be the person that she deserves. And you need a character like her to offset how terrible Bill is at first. And I also like about the character of Rita that Andy McDowell, you believe that she's giving Phil a chance. Whereas maybe that character could have been written as cold and standoffish and not as warm and inviting. Andy McDowell just radiates all over this film and their chemistry is immediate from moment one when Phil first sees her on set playing around with the blue screen and you can see a little twinge that he's charmed by her. She has this playful nature about her but one thing that she is not is she's not going to bow down to a bully like what Phil Connors is and she does stand up to him. If this were another movie or this wasn't a character in which, I mean, sorry to be like this, but sometimes men really can't write female characters too well. In this case, I think Rita's awesome. She stands up to him. She gives him a chance, but not in every scene. I mean, she goes probably, what, 80 years of turning him down, yeah. <laughs> basically. I also like, too, that her character's written in a way that when he eventually reveals to her this really heavy, crazy story she's inquisitive she's just not like this is the craziest thing i've ever heard and like what are you talking about you need to see a psychiatrist she actually sits down with him and like tries to understand where he's coming from she just doesn't write write it off because it's such a crazy unbelievable story it's a good point because we're not immediately thinking that these two could be a love interest like phil Phil is trying to sleep with any woman that he can. And Rita is kind of the ultimate. She's probably the prettiest girl in town on February 2nd. But the longer that it goes on and the further that Phil sinks into his depression, he's forming more of a friendship and a bond with her, even though it's you know her first day with him the entire time. But that is a really important point that we, even though it, this is a romance, they're going to end up together. It's this friendship that starts and respect that Phil needs to find for Rita before we can come full circle. And um, kind of moving on to another actor in this, uh, when we did our A Few Good Men episode, we kind of talked about Kevin Pollack and like a little goes a long way. And if you could like magnify that by oh, man. a large <laughs> margin. You're comparing him to Kevin Pollack. I'm just saying, <laughs> no. if you, yeah. the idea of <laughs> it, it, Chris Elliott, Um, And it's funny because I had this on uh, the other night. I was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and my wife hates Chris Elliott and she, you know, but she likes Groundhog's Day and she's like, I forgot this is the movie that he's like tolerable in. I 100% agree because usually he almost plays like characters that are like, they don't seem like real human beings. You know, they don't seem to like 
follow any kind of like social normities whatsoever in like every role that he plays in this one he like feels like a real living breathing human being i'm sorry in something about mary though he is i i know it I, is extreme and i understand over the top, but... yeah <laughs> i mean I, i'm i'm a fan of his i mean i really loved get alive the series yeah. that he did yeah know, right around this time but i do it is interesting to see him playing a role that is not you know totally outrageous and he you know usually comedic actors that's what they stick toward it's interesting that he never really leaned into this style of acting for too many other roles you know i think that you know he did in between stuff like the schitt's creek character yeah you know where he's like totally kind of gross at times and ridiculous but then has like little redeeming scenes here and there isn't it funny that the creators of this movie were like we're gonna go with two male leads um, that not everybody likes. Yeah. And but we're gonna really just make sure that that female lead is someone yeah. that you you can't not like. So yeah. somehow we'll make this work. Yeah. Andy Andy McDowell makes up for any any of that stuff. <laughs> Are we sitting here with our our next Joe Beth Williams yeah. fan club, yeah. which is Andy McDowell? We just dropped Joe Beth and uh, sorry and Joe Beth <laughs> replaced her on our. Uh, on our shrine, our uh, collage shrine with uh, heads yeah. of Andy McDowell. Yeah, perfect. I, I love it. Now, while we won't have a, a shrine to him, um, I do think that for a sub-character, someone that could be kind of forgettable for how annoying he is, Stephen Tobolowsky, who plays Ned Ryerson, I mean, good Lord, every scene that he's in, you're just waiting to see how Phil's going to react to him because of how obnoxious and terrible I mean, he's really not actually that terrible of a person. He's just completely obnoxious. And the things that he brought to this character were all his idea, all his creation. So when you see the uh, goofy gestures that he makes, or when he's trying to hang out with Rita and Phil when they're leaving the uh, Groundhog Day party, um, he's like, all right, where are we going? And they ditch him in, you know, the cutest way and he's like oh oh my god it's repulsive like whatever he does there is repulsive (laughs) but it's so perfect for that character it's wild though because when you listen to uh steven tobolowski like he does a lot of podcasts and Mm -hmm. voice work and when you listen to him on podcasts he's like so calm so intelligent such a fantastic storyteller you know and he said i was going for it he he said for his audition, he was like, I'm taking this like way over the top and see if they go for it. Steven Tobolowski said that the scene, that final scene that you see him in where um, the scene that you mentioned oh, where yeah. they say their goodbyes to him. Yeah. He said that he had finished shooting. He had went back home and he got a call saying that they needed him to come back to shoot a scene. And so he said he went all the way back up to Woodstock where they were shooting. And he said that that scene wasn't written yet and they didn't have anything. And so he claims that in the hotel room for two hours, he sat down and, and wrote that scene out and showed it to Harold Ramis and Harold Ramis showed it to Bill Murray, who didn't even want to do any more scenes with Ned Ryerson's character. <laughs> and he approved it. And then Stephen Tobolowsky said that the scene that he wrote as he wrote it is what they performed in that final moment with him. The loosey goosey nature of creating a movie with Harold yeah. Ramis when Bill Murray is involved or just Harold Ramis in general it's like so welcoming and inviting that one of the actors would be like I, yeah I wrote this scene because I figured we weren't going to have something when it showed up so yeah, no, we got it. Steven Tobolowsky's been in hundreds of things as like bit characters and yeah. and been a character actor for like 30 years but when he talks about Groundhog Day and the shooting 
he constantly refers to it as guerrilla filmmaking and saying <laughs> that like, yeah, they were just, you know, he was like, I was getting pages hot off the press, like right before, like minutes before we would shoot stuff. That is absolutely not surprising. And another actor that's always thrown into projects with Harold Ramis and his brother, Bill Murray, um, Brian Doyle Murray, who's playing the mayor of Punxsutawney. I swear you can stick this guy in any movie any character and he can nail it it's it's not like it's a a joke or that you're seeing some type of you know wink and nod that me and my brother are in a movie again it's not like that i mean if they didn't look like each other just be like another actor but he's awesome he nails exactly what you would imagine a down home like small town i don't know small if it's, town it's mayor would be of like where you know he's from chicago and yeah. he looks like an ordinary person yeah and is not you know doesn't look fit or anything but like somehow always manifests these characters that he's playing and like god looks and sounds and feels like a small town mayor and just about every role he plays like he just yeah it, it, like he looks and feels the part and always puts in an intentional slash unintentional funny moment in every movie that he does always something memorable even he's in maybe three scenes and has one line in uh waiting for guffman and he's one of my favorite parts yeah. of that movie he's in uh national lampoon's vacation for a second <laughs> yeah. and i always you know when he's he's the uh hotel clerk and he's like i just need you to put down your uh name and your address and chevy chase is like what for why do you need my address and he's like we like the we like to put out a mailer and he like spits like a watermelon seed into like a i mean if it weren't for brian bill wouldn't have been in second city it's so. true um let's see a couple smaller roles rick Ducommon, we love when he pops up in yes. a movie um two movies in a row that we've talked about where he's popped oh, up yeah that's no right. well two movies in a row but we've talked about three movies yeah, that's right. David Pasquese, who is has a very small role. He's the therapist that Phil briefly sees. Um, that guy, I know him from Strangers with Candy, Amy Sedaris Land. He's from Second City, too. He does a lot of voice work. Um, I forgot that he was in this movie and then I saw him. And, and you would never guess that he is a terrific comedic actor, um, but does a bang-up job in this movie, yeah. too. I think the movie's like littered with like these little bit parts of either real locals or people playing locals yeah. that give the movie its realism and charm of like being in a small town. It's nice that you don't even notice how real it feels. It just feels like you are in this town. Yeah. yeah. I guess like maybe a few years ago when I watched this, I was like, oh crap. The couple that Phil reunites at the end that are getting married and he gives them WrestleMania tickets, the fiance is played by Michael Shannon, who is a huge actor now, two-time Academy Award nominee, and a fantastic actor, but this was his film debut, and it's just wild seeing a young Michael Shannon playing such a goofy character, because he normally plays these like really dark and disturbed characters. If you haven't uh, seen Groundhog Day in a while, and you really like Michael Shannon, you'll get a kick out of seeing his uh, film debut. Yeah, that's right. I, for, I don't even think I recognized him. Let's round out the cast real quickly with uh, the reason that it's, you know, that this movie is in existence, really, is who plays Punxsutawney Phil, and that is Scooter the Groundhog. The production contacted a local animal wrangler months in advance of the production to secure, I mean, you're going to need a groundhog, and I don't know how many uh, actors there are that are groundhogs out there. So they were trying to find one that was local, 
And this animal wrangler said, look, give me a little while and I'll get some, I'll breed some groundhogs. So they took the best groundhog from that endeavor. And that is who is used in this movie. And that's Scooter. I think Scooter did a great job. A lot of people think that the scene where Bill is with a groundhog in the cab of the truck is green screened or is not a real groundhog. That is totally a real groundhog. Yeah. Yep. And I absolutely love it. I'm sorry that Bill got bit during this. I would kind of assume that I was going to get bit if I did that scene, honestly. But if it if it was a puppet, if it was a Caddyshack gopher, I think it would have been terrible. If it yeah. was some type of green screen thing, it would have been obvious. I like it that they keep it real. Yeah. Well, despite all of the conflicts throughout the production of Groundhog Day, it was finished. And what they had was a movie that uh, the studio seemed happy about. The actors and Harold Ramis seemed happy about the movie uh, strangely opened 10 days after Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. which is kind of odd on yeah. February 12th, 1993. And it was a sleeper hit. It went on the gross uh, just over $100 million, which I know doesn't sound like a lot now, but in 1993 for a comedy with Bill Murray as a star, that was pretty good success. Yeah. And it's called Groundhog Day. You don't know what to yeah, expect with that. Yeah. And it's kind of gone on to become, like you said earlier, like a, a movie that is revisited on the holiday. To me, it's like when there's snow on the ground, mm-hmm. it's one of my go-tos. Like, I'm going to throw Groundhog Day on. And one more thing about the ongoing longevity, giant cultural status of this movie. In 2017, the musical Groundhog Day, and when it debuted, Bill, along with brother Brian Doyle Murray, the mayor of Punxsutawney in the movie, and Danny Rubin, the original writer, all went together to see the performance. And Bill was seen um, for somebody who, you know, like we've talked about the difficulties and everything that came along with it. This is three years after Harold Ramis passed away. Um, Bill was seen visibly like in tears watching it and was quoted after the performance saying that it was uh, just really something that was moving and just happy that he was part of this um, in the beginning and that the idea that we just have to try again was just so beautiful. You know, and gotta say, maybe he's just getting older in age and softer in age, but um, I need to see this musical. Yeah. It's not going to happen, but... I don't know that I would see it, but maybe. I don't know. You don't like musicals. I don't. I mean, I'm not the biggest musical fan, but I would see this one. All right. Yeah. Well, let's stop there for a moment. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Groundhog Day. I think that's the first time since the opening that you've said a singular groundhog. Come on. Lindsay, tell me about your pick of the week. What can you tell me about the movie? The sequel to this, Groundhog's Day, it's a it's a horror movie. That hurts. <laughs> How dare you. Can you tell me about your pick of the week? And that is Bird on a Wire. Yes, I can. Is that the movie Birds on a Wire? Birds on a Wire, yeah. that's also the sequel. <laughs> tell me about Birds on the Wire. <laughs> on the Wires? Tell me about Birds on the Wires. <laughs> I committed to using Stephen Tobolowsky for my pick of the week because this guy is just a great character actor, and Groundhog Day is the crowning achievement of his career being a character actor. But when I remembered he was also in this Goldie Hawn, Mel Gibson movie that I grew up with, I wanted to revisit it. Most often on this podcast, we call horror light or action heavy minimal plot movies popcorn movies. And with this one, you get a half decent, pretty simple storyline writing on the chemistry between Hahn and Gibson atop one action sequence after another, and then throw in some unresolved romantic feelings, lightly peppered in doses of comedy from two actors who can dish it out, and you've got yourself a satisfying Sunday afternoon flick. 
for the most part, Bird on a Wire is a road trip movie. Goldie Hawn, who can captivate me in just about anything, plays Marianne, an attorney who travels to Detroit on a business deal. And while at a gas station, the man who services her car looks awfully familiar, a throwback to her past life, a remembrance of her former hippie anti-war self before she went white collar. The man pumping her gas looks exactly like her ex-fiancé Rick from 15 years prior who stood her up on their wedding day, and now she's about to find out why. When she confronts this gregarious gas station attendant with a terrible southern accent, he denies her claims that they were once lovers. And why? Well, Rick, or Billy Ray, as he's now known, I mean, Gibson, his southern accent is not great. It's probably intentional for this movie. But Rick is now in the witness protection program. And the reason he never showed up to their wedding was because he and a friend witnessed a drug deal that went bad, a murder happened, and Rick testified against those parties involved, thus being forced to enter the witness protection program because his life was then in danger. Our bad guys are David Carradine and Bill Duke, by the way, two seasoned and terrific actors. Carradine is not his usual whisper-loving self. Um, He's a lot scarier um, in this role. And Bill Duke, I mean, Justin and I have always been singing this guy's praises since early on in the podcast. And thanks to these bad guys blackmailing a sniveling, double-crossing, untrustworthy FBI agent, played by Stephen Tobolowsky, of course, Rick is now unsafe that his location has been revealed to the bad guys who are looking for revenge, seeing as how Rick is the only living witness to their crimes. One thing leads to another, and Rick relents when Marianne returns to find him in a precarious situation. She saves him from being murdered, but now they're on the run from the bad guys Tobolowski has sent to find Rick in order to take him out once and for all. This sounds like a lot already, but here's where the action takes over. We have car chases, motorcycle chases, an airplane chase, destruction of multiple properties, explosions, a lion attack, okay, you name it. And Marianne is mixed up in all of Rick's drama. Action comedies have the probability to feel very of their time, and that's not a bad thing. Some feathered hair really never hurt anybody. Director John Badham cranked out decently rewatchable movies like this one, like War Games, Short Circuit, probably the topper being Point of No Return. And Batam is good at capturing action, even if your plot is thin. And if your plot is thin, you better be visually engaging. Writer David Seltzer had already penned movies like the original Omen, Lucas, and Punchline. And when your leads are absolute pros like Hahn and Gibson giving your words life, especially in a movie that's just primarily action, it really does rest on the shoulders of the actors. There's a tiny section where it does get a little cringy um, involving Gibson revisiting a former witness protection life that he had to abandon um, in which it's implied that he was a gay hairdresser at one time. I wouldn't say that it's offensive per se, um, especially because as quick as it hits, Hawn and Gibson are thrust into another impossible escape situation. There is a certain sweetness underlying the story. Goldie Hawn can't help but bring that to a role, but she's not a damsel in distress. Even though there is a romance rekindling, it's more of a buddy movie. And paired with Mel Gibson, the two make a believable duo, former lovers who were torn apart, never had any resolution, but now find themselves thrown back together. It's a very fairy tale-like theme that never happens in reality, but is sure fun to pretend. There are also two great actors who can do physical comedy really well, and this movie in lesser capable hands wouldn't be as entertaining. It's completely improbable everything about this film, but sometimes that's perfectly all right. You've been having a knack lately again with uh, picking movies I haven't seen since they came out. And I did. I remember renting this and watching it with my grandma when it came out. I I, I remember the poster to this movie really, really well. But yeah. when uh, you said you were doing this, I tried to think if I could recall anything from this movie, <laughs> and I only could just recall like 
Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn like running frantically and that was like about all I could remember from the movie. That's what the movie is. The movie's finale seems to take forever, but it's just constant like one thing after another. It's it's a lot of action. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think Justin your pick of the week involves a uh guy who's pretty big deal right now starring in The Whale. Yeah, Brendan Fraser mm-hmm. who's the talk of Hollywood right now and I just recently saw The Whale in was kind of floored by the movie and I don't that rarely happens to me but I've been uh, singing its praises and got me thinking about Brendan Fraser and uh Harold Ramis and so I chose Bedazzled which was a movie that came out in 2000 directed by Harold Ramis and starring Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley now I hadn't seen this movie since it came out but I think the main reason I watched it when it came out in 2000 was uh I had the hugest crush on Elizabeth Hurley, so I watched pretty much any movie that she was in, and she really excels in this movie. And on this rewatch, I really think she makes this movie, though Brendan Fraser does a really great job. The movie is a remake of a movie with the same name that came out in 1967. I never saw the original, so I don't know comparatively if this one follows the structure of that one. Um, But the story of the movie is the devil, played by Elizabeth Hurley, has some sort of computer-generated software, at least 2,000 version, that can find who would be the best pick for someone to manipulate them to steal their soul. And they come up with Elliot Richards, played by Brendan Fraser, who works at some sort of computer company. Um, he's a total outcast at his work. You know, he's he's supposed to be played up as kind of like a real big nerd, um, but a 2000s nerd. Like nowadays, the word nerd is much different. The tonality of this movie in the beginning makes you not feel sorry for him because it's like, oh, his coworkers don't want to hang out with him because he really sucks. He's like over the top. He's like always up in people's business and like trying too hard to like win their affection. And you just, it, it kind of gives you the creeps. You're like, man, I get why no one wants to hang out with this guy. It's not so much that he's like a nerd and like is an outcast. He's just like always trying too hard. And then on top of it all, he has this crush on the woman named Allison who he's never met yet. He like has this like built in like fantasy of like, oh man, I just want to be with her. You know, she's like the the most amazing person, but he's never spoken one word to her. And again, when you're watching this in 2023, it just he just comes off like really creepy. So I was uh, on this rewatch at first. I was like, man, this is not starting out good. Once he meets up with Elizabeth Hurley, she basically says, I'm the devil. I'll give you seven wishes. I'll grant seven wishes to you, but I get your soul. And at first he doesn't believe her. So she's like, well, have a wish. And he's like, I wish I had McDonald's right now. And then she like takes him to McDonald's and like places an order for him. And you know, he's like, well, that's not really anybody could have done that. And she's like, well, that's what you wished for. So then she takes him to like her lair, which is like this weird 2000 era, like nightclub. But all these people are like saying his name and like wanting to meet him. And it's the first time he's gotten any sort of attention. So she kind of reveals more to herself that she is a devil and she has magic. And so he starts doing these wishes and all his wishes involve him wanting to get with this woman, Allison. Like, so his first wish is like, I want to be rich and I want to be super powerful. And Elizabeth Hurley grants him these wishes and we see him live out these scenarios in about 10 to 15 minute segments. But she always like messes up the wish. She makes him rich and powerful, but he's a drug dealer and like a cartel drug dealer. And he's like living in Mexico and he can like speak Spanish, but 
then he has like the woman Allison with him and the people from his work also show up as like secondary characters in each one of these like wish fantasies. So in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a fantasy film, but it doesn't really get old with each wish. He realizes he wants to be someone else and he wants to be super sensitive. And so she makes him the most sensitive man on the planet. And he's like trying to have a conversation with Allison, but he like looks at the sun and he keeps sobbing and it's absolutely hysterical. He has another one where he's like a, gigantically tall NBA basketball player and she wants him but then it turns out he has a really small penis with every step of the way is like messing with him and then eventually you know he confronts her about it and they actually start developing like a a really nice relationship they the the thing to watch about this movie is the chemistry between Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley who I think uh really was like used the best um in this movie for her ability to be witty and sarcastic and also like extremely um, playful and sexy. And so, yeah, if you're a fan of Elizabeth Hurley and you've never seen Bedazzled, this is like the movie to watch. Going back to The Whale, it was kind of wild watching him because these, these the Bedazzled are the kind of movies that I'm used to seeing Brendan Fraser do. So like The Whale kind of caught me by surprise because I'm not used to seeing him in a role that dramatic. Like I'm used to seeing him in these light, playful movies. And so this was, it was kind of a wild a juxtaposition of seeing the whale and bedazzled in the same week. It's kind of tripped me out a little bit. And uh, if you haven't checked out the whale, I can't recommend it more. Um, I really think it's one of the best movies that I've seen in the last year. I think that I've never actually seen bedazzled. I don't know how that escaped me because I worked in a video rental when this came out. Um, but it sounds like it's a very, like, Harold Ramis would have directed this movie, even if it does teeter on some, like, things where you're like, that character sucks. There are some redeeming things about them. I know I need to catch the whale. Yeah. I'm going to before it leaves theaters. I, I believe that you will. I'd go see it again, even though it's, uh, it's like someone holding a onion to your eye for two hours, I'd go see it again. Yeah, I'm going to Claire Dane's ugly cry to it, Justin. Yeah, I did. I went to see it at the Alamo when they were bringing me my tab like the movie was like in its like final <laughs> moments i was just like look away well thank you for that justin oh it's my pleasure well those are our picks of the week bird on the wire and bedazzled again we don't have a murray moment for this episode because we're doing a bill murray movie and we always feel like we don't want to burn people out on bill murray even though it's hard for us to get burnt out on him we know it's a lot of bill murray for one episode so we're going to close things out here uh, we have a couple final thoughts on Groundhog Day. We're almost at the end of the episode, and I'm really like starting to uh, get used to saying it the proper, the proper way that you're supposed to say it. That I've been messing up for my entire life. Just a singular groundhog. That's it. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, my final thoughts on Groundhog Day are our ever-growing list of places we want to go visit, where they're taking like the, the location of a movie and kind of making it something that you can go check out. And in Woodstock, Illinois, which wouldn't be a terribly far drive for us, that town has like really um, celebrated the fact that Groundhog Day was filmed there, like we talked about earlier. And they've, you know, have a museum for the movie. They have a festival every year that celebrates the movie with props and everybody comes out and they show screenings of the movie. And it sounds like a lot of fun. You can actually go check out um, if you look up uh, Groundhog Day Celebration in Woodstock, Illinois, you can find their website, and it usually there's a list of like events that they have. It goes over, I believe, like three days over wow. a weekend, yeah. and sounds like a lot of fun, um, right up our alley. I can totally yes. see us 
one of these days. One of these days we're going to do it, damn it. We're going to go on a little road trip and we're going to go check out the Shawshank prison and then we're going to go check out uh, the filming locations for Groundhog Day. And that one's pretty close. I mean, it's, you know, there some of these places, like there's three, I think, in Texas, but that's a haul. Yeah. You know, this one, yeah, stocks we're, we're, a little closer. Our state borders the state that yes. <laughs> that, that this location's at. We, we should We should do it. I think also one of the local theaters in Woodstock, after Harold Ramis died, they dedicated one of the one of the screening rooms um, to him that it's named after Harold Ramis, too. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, my final thought um, is, is something a little bit, I guess it's a little bit of a Murray moment. In the scene where Rita's fallen asleep on Phil in bed and he starts saying really sweet things to her, like, you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest person I've ever met in my life, and... There's a good chunk of dialogue here. Uh, he doesn't speed through it like what I just did. But it's a really heartfelt, sentimental moment. And like we've talked about in this episode, Bill was going through a lot of personal problems. Um, he and Harold, you know, weren't speaking by the end of this movie. And he was going through a divorce. The section here, the speech that he says to Rita is pretty much, at least from what he can remember, like Bill wrote this part. Um, it's what he said to his first wife, Margaret Kelly, um, on their wedding night um, after they had had too much to drink and she had fallen asleep on him. So I think, like, for me, watching that that moment is just so, I mean, it's devastating because, like, he's getting divorced from yeah. her. And I think it was because he cheated on her. Um, it's just, like, absolutely devastating that he's saying it, but in this uh, in this case. Makes for a really great scene. Yeah, really does. And the only other thing I want to mention is this movie has a lot of rewatchability factors that go beyond Groundhog Day. And I really realized that watching this at my current age versus, you know, when I watched it when I was 12 and just thinking that we come back to this movie and are different people, every whether we come back to it every year or um, however we watch it, whether it's 10 years later and you experience it differently. In a lot of ways, it has a timeless quality to it but it's kind of a existential nightmare in a lot of ways and when it came out Harold Ramis had leaders from like yogis and Hasidic Jews and Christians and psychiatrists that were all sending him letters and contacting him and saying obviously you made this movie with this point of view in mind and um, you know I think that all of everybody's right because we can all take something from it and that's what gives it this timeless quality and more you know, dating this episode as far as 2020 in relation to COVID, with COVID still existing. I think a lot of people grabbed onto this film in particular because we were living every single day the same over, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people with the fear of not knowing what's next if we were ever going to break out of the loop and really gives us um, a whole new spin on this film. And I think it's probably going to still keep reinventing itself in that way and how we look at it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this movie really played so much more differently over the last few years. Yeah. Do you have anything else? Uh, the only other thing I was going to mention, and this is only pertinent if you're listening to this episode within the first few days that we've put this out, mm -hmm. and that's the Wildy Theater. If you're in St. Louis, the Wildy Theater is in Edwardsville, which is about a 30, 35-minute drive from here. Uh, they're actually showing Groundhog Day on Groundhog Day. Uh, February 2nd and it's at seven o'clock if you've never been to the wild it's great it's like a one screen theater with a balcony and uh, volunteer run it's a fantastic theater I've seen dozens of movies there it's worth the drive um, so we'll, we'll post that in the social media as well 
That's pretty cool. So before we close things out, what do we have coming up next month? We're doing Oh, we have a special episode coming up next. That's right. Yeah. This is going to be pretty wild, guys. This is going to be, uh, what do we decide on calling it? The Blank from Hell. The Blank from Hell episode 90s edition, right? Yeah. Or something something of that nature. Yeah. Where we're going to be talking about all the the babysitter from hell, the crush from hell, (laughs) the the temp from hell, like all of these, you know, 90s thrillers that dealt with obsession and were usually a lot of fun and a little bit trashy at times. Definitely trashy. So it's the first time we've done a special episode in a while. Um, So it's always a lot of fun because we talk about so many different movies. We're not just focusing on one singular movie. So that's coming up next month. Thank you so much for listening. Again, hope you have a happy new year unless you're Larry David. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Prediction show. You're feeling just the same. But seasons come and seasons go. I'll make you smile